Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Something strange is happening on May 30th. Rogue Planet presents All the Strange 2020, a virtual online expo highlighting and celebrating UFOs, extraterrestrial life, ghosts, Bigfoot, you know, all the strange. Join us on May 30th as we showcase a series of fun presentations delivered by a lineup of awesome humans who are fascinated by the strange. And get this, All the Strange 2020 is a 100% free event. So jump over to allthestrange.com and register now. Today on the show, we've got Micah Hanks, and we're going back, way way back to discuss medieval ufos solving millennia old aerial phenomena cases and then we ask the most important question what exactly is 14 hip-hop strange light shot from cloud like blood dropping from eye of dragon wind blue blood rain blood rain blood rain This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Spread. Tonight is going to be really special. This is a Somewhere in the Skies that we're actually calling Somewhere in the Medieval Skies. Now, we won't only be talking medieval. We're going to be talking a bunch of other things with my very special guest tonight, and that is the one and only Micah Hanks. How you doing, buddy? Brother, it is so good to be here. Hopefully, you guys can hear me and that I'm coming through loud and clear in this yeah. patch, this, uh, this social distance dispatch. So, yeah. times, huh? I mean, stranger even than usual for guys like you and me. That is a very good point. We are living in... Um, Probably a scenario not many of us ever really pictured, unless it was in the movies. Um, but you know what? Epidemiologists have been saying for years we were long overdue for something like this. Now, that does not mean anything good. But um, at the same time, it means, you know what? It was bound to happen. Unfortunately, it was now. And that's how these things come when we least expect it. So yeah. we're making do. We're... Um, we're trying to stay positive and do stuff like this just to distract ourselves for a few hours a day. You know, that has been, and again, thank you for uh, inviting me to join you here tonight, Ryan, because this is, um, I think so very important right now. I, I've said on my own shows uh, several times over the last few weeks that just because uh, we have to maintain distance, that doesn't mean we have to fall out of touch. And the, you know, the benefit really has been, I'm going to be redundant, you know, to people who listen to our shows and things, because I have said this many times and I'll continue to the one benefit, because like you, I try to see the, the positive side of all this sort of stuff has truly been that it has afforded us some unique opportunities to get in touch. Like the live stream we did with Shannon and Lyle and our friends the other night, Rob, everybody, Derek. So, you know, it's, it's, it's always great to be able to get together and, and share discussions. Um, I've uh, been able to uh, increase 
my uh, reach and and even uh, imp- uh, even get to know some people who I've been in touch with already better as a result of the uh, lockdowns, including you speak, you speak of epidemiologists. And, uh, you know, I've gotten to know Dr. Thomas Glass, Ph.D. very well. He's a retired epidemiologist who's interested in, guess what, UFOs. So it's been a very unique experience. And again, I try to I try to see the, the positive side of it, ma'am. Yeah, I think we're learning a lot about ourselves right now, about um, humanity, about our governments, um, just everything. You know, I think this there's no going back from this. We're going to come out of this uh, in a whole new world. Uh, we're going to pick up the pieces, build, rebuild it again. And um, I think that's kind of what the UFO topic represents to a lot of us too. We build off of what we've learned and we try to look at it in a whole new light. And that could not be more true than what we're going to sort of be talking about today. We're going pre-ufology tonight. So this is going to be fun. This is something I'm going to admit, man, I've never looked into. So you you are going to be the conductor of this train tonight uh, for sure, but I will definitely chime in. I know our viewers on YouTube and Facebook will as well. I will try to get to as many questions or comments as I can. But before we even get to that, I do want to warn everyone, you may at 7 p.m., yeah, 7 p.m. EST, you might hear a lot of cheering and clanking of pots and shouting, um, at least here in New York City, every night at 7 p.m., New Yorkers have been sending their cheers and thanks in the most, oh, the best way they know how, and that's to yell, scream, and make a lot of noise for our first responders, our frontline workers. And we, I do live near a hospital, so um, if tonight at 7 p.m. you hear a lot of ruckus outside, just know it's for a good reason, and that I'm sending all my thanks and gratitude to everyone out there working right now and keeping us safe. We'll join right in. We will. We will. <laughs> Once I hear it, you'll, you, you will know, trust me, New Yorkers, they uh, make themselves known when they want to. Um, but before we get to that as well, my man, what are you drinking? I did ask you to bring something to the table tonight. What you got? That, that is true. And if you know me, you know I get a grin again and again. Here I have, yes, straight from St. Uh, James Gate, Dublin, if I can speak here. <laughs> uh, I have my Guinness in my goblet that was given to me by my archaeological cohort jason pentrail who might be listening at home i don't know i know he just called me so if you are out there listening jason that's why i missed your call and brother i'll call you back later (laughs) (laughs) my goodness in the glass that he gave me and uh yes and i i believe you have a ceremonial beverage of some yeah so i'm going um i'm going local tonight i've got original sin black widow cider Mm -hmm. it's delicious man it's got a black raspberry taste to it um very light, very refreshing. Hey, I wish I could be having a Guinness right now. That's silky smooth, dark. dark the, only thing than, the only thing better than having a Guinness would be if we could have a Guinness together, Ryan. And, um, you know, <laughs> I, I, I think so fondly of uh, when you and I and uh, and our friends up in uh, Canada, of course, Paul Kimball and Holly Stevens, and then folks from here stateside, Greg Bishop and Walter Bosley, a bunch of us were up there together. Uh, Tim Banal, you know, just having a fantastic time uh, with, by the way, the late, great Stanton Friedman. He made an appearance that weekend. So the last time you and I actually got to imbibe together, it was in the presence of greatness, quite literally. And do you remember uh, Stanton gave his first speech for the last time that night? That's right. The first lecture he ever gave in front of a public audience he gave to the people of uh, Nova Scotia, which was, I mean, 
it blows my mind that we were able to see that and experience that. And, you know, unfortunately, not long after is when we lost him. So to have that opportunity and to hear what started him on this path, uh, it's just, it's a memory I will hold dearly, I think. It's probably till my own dying days. So. Yeah. Oh, by the way, um, let's see. Bacon Cheddar Bomb there in the chat has said I'm more of a Modelo Negra guy. Well, <laughs> I too, let me tell you, I enjoy the Modelo Negra. That's also, I think it's just dark beer. If I'm going to drink a beer, it's it's going to be a dark beer. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, that's that's definitely a, a good one as well. You know, on the subject of Stanton, that's maybe kind of an interesting place to begin because the beginning here at the end, there's Stanton giving his first lecture on UFOs close to the end of his life. And, you know, even though no one, you know, saw per se that Stanton was that close to, uh, you know, the, the great trip, the great uh, ufological trip into the ever after, uh, we sensed it. Yeah. I think you would agree, Ryan. We sensed it. He had, he had announced his retirement and, you know, he was beginning to you know, slow down the pace was, was, it wasn't as quick as it had once been. And yet the incredible thing was the knowledge he could still give those lectures and he could still, you know, get up there and and speak even if slower. I mean, as well, I think as he ever did, uh, you know, I think Stanton really kind of brought to public attention uh, at a time when the UFO phenomena was a a very nebulous kind of a thing is it, what is this? Uh, Are we looking at Russia? Are we looking at, uh, you know, another world power, who else could it be if not Russia? But I mean, is this secret U.S. technology? The Air Force is investigating it. That much we know. Okay, great. At, in that era, again, the UFO investigators were largely, I mean, you had Donald Kehoe, you had, uh, you know, Edwards, of course, behind the flying saucers, you had, you know, many writers, Gray Barker, people like that. But Stanton becomes this the first guy as a civilian researcher, but as a scientist and a nuclear physicist at that, who starts doing the lectures, the lecture circuits at the colleges. And he starts bringing to broader public awareness, you know, guys, ufology is something that seems to be far different from weather balloons and, you know, secret planes and things uh, and the blue book boys and what they're studying. And I, again, I think we can kind of credit Stanton for bringing into the modern dialogue, you know, the UFO phenomenon as we know it today. I think he was instrumental in shifting and shaping the way that the public perceives that. And even though he was a scientist, of course, becoming a historical archivist, spending a lot of times at the National Archives looking for a paper trail that gives us an idea of not only if there is a phenomenon, if there's a reality behind it, but what role government has played in that and whether or not certain information has been withheld from the public. So again, really, I can't think of another researcher who in in their lifetime did quite as much as Stanton Friedman did in that regard. And what I take away from all that is the way that the very meticulous at times uh, has to be, uh, but the chronicling of the history of the phenomenon is essential to understanding it and being able to see the big picture, so to speak, so I have to thank Stanton, uh, you know, here at the outset of this conversation we're having for really laying a lot of that groundwork and kind of driving home for me how important history is in relation to the study of this topic. Absolutely. And I mean, if anything, we take from what Stanton taught us and uh, we can either look forward or look backward. And what I am finding most unique about this 
research that you're doing currently within the UFO field is um, going back as far as recorded history, basically, which is amazing. And it kind of came to light to me with a, um, a recent sighting this past February of a, I, I guess we could call it a, a symbol or a, um, if you want to get religious, a crucifix of such seen in the sky. And um, this actually propels us much further back. So could you tell us a little about how this current event kind of influenced your research in now moving backwards when it comes to not just UFOs, but aerial phenomena in general? Right. I'm glad you said that uh, right there. Aerial phenomena in general. What is important to understand? Uh, I think that there are a lot of misconceptions about this. Now, it's almost difficult to phrase it. I'm going to do do my best here. Um, when we talk about UFOs, generally, we have an idea of you know what we mean. We mean a spaceship, a flying saucer or something along those lines. Uh, the thing about UFOs that is so perplexing and so difficult uh, to reconcile with is the fact that a leading theory has been since the dawn of the, the modern UFO era, which, again, I don't think anyone would dispute that this begins in the summer of 1947 you know, with Kenneth Arnold, uh, also with the famous Roswell incident. Uh, you know, even if you prescribe to the idea that that was just, you know, a a mogul operation that at the time the Air Force couldn't come clean with and they had to say weather balloon. And then we find out many years later, uh, of course, having read the government documents on this Roswell case closed and, you know, seen both uh, the uh, approach by the hopeful ufologists, the once hopeful ufologists, uh, guys like Kevin Randall, who then. Years later, they kind of have to say, you know, after studying Roswell for so long, I don't see as much there. A note, of course, right behind me here. <laughs> yep. Got my copies of the Roswell Daily Love Record. It. If I had to guess, I mean, I'm not really so much in the, of course, actually, you know, you being uh, one who has done a lot of work with Roswell in, in modern times with your television program. But, you know, I I kind of treat the, the Roswell subject as, uh, you know, one of these one of these landmark cases, but one that you know, it's probably not going to be the smoking gun that we once hoped it would be because after all of this exhaustive research, um, whether or not there's a phenomenon represented by it, we are left with the reality that it has not convinced, you know, many of the doubters and it hasn't offered us that you know, the final reality, right? It's an interesting case in that regard, especially historically speaking. But when we go further back, again, you know, we look at Roswell and we look at the evolution of, you know, disc landed, you know, on Roswell Ranch. The next day, actually, it was a weather balloon. Years later, the government, you know, changes the story again. We're looking at a, you know, a project that for national security reasons couldn't be talked about at that time. When we when we go further back, what's interesting about what I call pre-ufology, pre-1947 is, first of all, we don't have terms like flying saucer, disc, or the later you know, UFO, uh, which, as you had uh, pointed out, uh, they interviewed you on camera, of course, for um, Seth Breedlove and Shannon Legros fantastic on the trail of UFOs. And you'd said, you know, again, that that term UFO comes from the government uh, that comes from Edward Ruppelt, uh, you know, who's trying to institute a more ambiguous term for the wide array of things that are being seen. And going back further in time, what has to be remembered about the study of UFOs, especially from antiquity up until the modern uh, period, is that people have, again, since time immemorial, it has been part of the human experience to see things in the sky and to 
project onto them human attitudes and to search for and assign agency to them. That all occurred prior to modern ufology. And I suspect strongly, this is going to be a theme we'll continue to touch on throughout the night. There, I suspect strongly that in modern times, people still do the same things. And that essentially, when people see things in the sky that they cannot explain, whatever that may be, celestial phenomenon, an aircraft at a distance, you know, an experimental technology, an actual flying saucer, a spaceship from, you know, who knows where, Zeta 2 Reticuli. I strongly suspect that when people see something in the sky they cannot explain, we still go through this reckoning process of trying to interpret it. What, it, what have I seen? What could that be? Did it appear to interact with me? Did it try to communicate? And, you know, how did this reshape my thoughts about existence? You know, these are all very, you know, existential questions. And so a lot of the modern nuts and bolts UFO researchers kind of look at this and they're like, this is not ufology. What are we talking about here? This is like psychology. And uh, on my program this week, the Micah Hanks program, I was joined by an interesting guest, Ryan, who you you might want to talk with at some point too. Really interesting guy. Retired professor David uh, David, uh, Halperin. And he is the author of a new book called Intimate Alien, uh, The Hidden Story of the UFO. Halperin's contention is he actually doesn't believe in the UFO phenomena as a physical, tangible phenomena. He calls it a modern myth, but he says that being a myth makes it no less real. Now, let's be clear. I differ from dear Dr. Halperin on that point. I do think that there is a uh, there is a very good case to be made and that there is enough evidence in support of the idea that physical, tangible objects do represent many UFO sightings, and that's maybe the biggest takeaway from the big post-2017 New York Times A-tip, you know, UFO culture bomb that occurred. You know, in addition to, you know, talking with Lou Elizondo, who I've only had limited uh, interactions with, but he's a wonderful guy, um, and also seeing the way that there's been this sort of, uh, again, to borrow uh, Halperin's term, a renaissance, uh, similar to a renaissance, you know, UFOs are big again. They're they're popular. This is something that many people are interested in. Well, that's really culturally significant. But for, I think, us in the UFO community, we see these three pieces of video footage utilizing the Raytheon's uh, targeting pod, the Atflir. And we appear to have something on camera, you know, vague and fuzzy though that is, that is behaving unlike any technology we know and yet, which appears to represent a technology. So again, I'm in that. Yes, I think UFOs are a real tangible phenomenon in many instances. I don't know. And this is going to sound really weird too, Ryan, as we're about to dive into the antiquity stuff. I don't know if people saw flying saucers in ancient times, but the, the point I want to try and drive home tonight as we're talking about this is that I think that to understand UFOs, you have to understand the levels of interpretation that humans apply to them. And that is not something that is modern. That is not a modern phenomenon. People seeing things they can't identify and then interpreting and projecting onto it. And as we're going to see, people did that in the ancient past. Now, okay, you you touched on something. You'd mentioned this cross from February 2020. I'll give you a, a quick uh, recap here. That This was reported by the Star Online just in February. A mysterious cross has been captured, appeared uh, appearing above the Holy Land in Israel in what some have called a sign from the heavens. The image by an uploader known only as the rabbi, rather uh, appropriate name, and sent into YouTube conspiracy theorist Mr. BB333 uh, shows what seems like a dark cross in the clouds with a number seven next to it. Now, in the video, 
what you're seeing are clouds. All right. They're clouds. Yeah. It's not a cross shaped object. It is not an actual cross suspended in the sky. It is purely clouds. And I think most of us have been outside, you know, laying on a blanket, looking up at the sky on a, you know, a pretty day and you see things in the clouds. What do you see? I see a rabbit. What do you see? Mm-hmm. I see a puppy dog, you know, pari- yeah, yeah. But oh, could you, what was that called again, Micah? Paradelia? There we go. Just the, that is just the faculty of the mind to essentially assign uh, significance to or to see images in random, you know, constructs where no actual image exists. Well, how appropriate, of course, over the Holy Land, people look up and they see a cross. Now, granted, there was a cross-shaped, undeniably cross-shaped cloud, but is that a cross? Is that a symbol? Is it a sign, or is it just a cloud? Now, this is really interesting to me especially in the context of looking at UFOs in antiquity, because throughout ancient times, you will find report after report of clouds or crosses or stars or other objects that resemble a cross hovering in the sky or sometimes just a curious apparition that is a like an, a luminous cross hovering over a city like Constantinople. Throughout time, there have been so many instances where a religious symbol appears in the sky hovering over a battlefield or a cultural site or a city during a siege like Constantinople. And uh, I have to reference the incredible work, and this is a book I'm sure that you're probably familiar with as well as many of our listeners, uh, Wonders in the Sky that uh, Jacques Vallée and Chris Albeck co-authored a few years ago. That book... Uh, you know, some have criticized it because some feel that, well, a lot of these obviously religious, you know, symbols and signs and things, these are not UFOs. Uh, you know, why are these in this book? Others have said, you know, if these guys are trying to prove that aliens were here in a long, you know, long time ago, they're doing a very poor job, you know. And yet I would say to people, I noticed uh, you put up on uh, social media earlier, uh, somebody asked what kinds of things should I read in preparation for this? And you put a copy of Valet's Passport to Magonia. Anyone who is familiar with Valet's reinterpretation of the state of ufology with that book will know that he, at that point, was becoming kind of dissatisfied with the extraterrestrial approach to studying UFOs. And although he does not come out and say it is something else and here is what it is, he he never offers explicitly another interpretation. But what he does say in that book is essentially, guys, Anybody else seeing the curious similarity between fairy folklore and the traditions associated with the Fae going back throughout history and many of the modern UFO contact experiences? Is that to say that they are one and the same? Maybe not, but one cannot deny the similarities. And that's what Valet was trying to point out. Here again, one interpretation of that may be that whatever stimuli is actually there or not, the human interpretation of the phenomena causes us to assign an agency to it. And I think that that's true, whether or not we are looking at a cloud that's shaped like a cross, or we're looking at an actual flying saucer, and we don't know where it's from or who's in that craft, but we have ideas. It must be this or that. So Valet, I think, and Albeck, uh, what they're trying to do is they're trying to point out, look, the similar you know, nature of that human experience of seeing something wholly miraculous or unexplained and the significance that we assign to it, that is not something that began with UFO research. It's something that has been with us since ancient times. And the UFO phenomenon, whatever it represents, is a modern manifestation of that. And man, I tell you, again, I think a lot of people who read the book, they're like, oh, wow, look, you know, UFOs have been flying around since, you know, 
before you know Christ. Well, that's one interpretation. I think, though, that valet is trying to inspire people to look a little deeper and say, you know, again, there's something here about the human experience. So now coming back to this cross again, this occurred in 2020, man. This this isn't 850 B.C., but I make a uh, a comparison between this case and actually a similar one that occurred uh, on May 7th in the year 351 A.D. And I'm going I'm going way back and we might as well take it all the way back. Now and, and take that TARDIS, man. Let's jump in the TARDIS, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> back in time. Now, this is—I believe this example was uh, touched on uh, by Valet and uh, Albeck in their book, but they cite a different um, version of the source. But the report, nonetheless, comes from uh, Salminius Hermias Zosuminus in his Ecclesiastical History. Now, again, we're we're going to a religious text and an account uh, of something that occurred on May 7th in the year 351 looking for UFOs. This is going to be a wild ride. Um, What occurred was the appearance of a cross in the sky. It wasn't just on that date, in fact. It stayed in the sky for many nights, and they say remained in the sky, and people were able to see it. But the account that that, uh, Zosimenes gives us is, at the time, and I quote, that Cyril administered the Church of Jerusalem after Maximus, the sign of the cross appeared in the heavens. It shone brilliantly, not with divergent rays like a comet, but with the concentration of a great deal of light, apparently dense and yet transparent. Now, again, he is apparently not a firsthand observer. He actually collects this from other observers. Note, we have a guy who is giving a history of an account of something strange seen in the sky, and he's collecting eyewitness accounts from people. Very similar to the way that modern ufology is conducted. Isn't that interesting? The account continues. It goes on to say its length was about 15 stadia, and that's significant. We'll come back to that in a moment. Its length was about 15 stadia from Calvary to the Mount of Olives, and its breadth was in proportion to its length. So extraordinary a phenomenon excited universal terror. Men, women, and children left their houses, the marketplace, or their respective employments, and ran to the church where they sang hymns to Christ together and voluntarily confessed their belief in God. The intelligence disturbed in no little measure our entire dominions, and this happened rapidly, for, as the custom was, there were travelers from every part of the world, so to speak, who were dwelling at Jerusalem for prayer or to visit its places of interest. These were spectators of the sign and divulged the facts to their friends at home. So, again, there are some interesting clues that Zosimenes gives us in this account. Including, for instance, he tells us that the emperor was made acquainted with the occurrence partly by numerous reports concerning it, which were then current, and partly by a letter from Cyril, the bishop. It was said that this prodigy, and that's an important term, we're going to come back to that in a moment also, that this prodigy was a fulfillment of an ancient prophecy contained in the Holy Scriptures. It was the means of the conversion of many pagans and Jews to Christianity. Now, we cannot be... 100% certain what this object was. But what is kind of novel is the way that people use landmarks to orient where this thing appeared in the sky. And we have the date. And with modern uh, star tracking technologies, astronomical programmings, or programs rather, um, like Starry Night Pro, for instance, that's a great one, although it's a little costly, but you can, anybody can uh, purchase it. Uh, There's also a I think there's a a free version of it, and then there's also like a student version. But with programs like this, what we can do is we can plug in the date, give the location. We can actually see if there would be a bright celestial object that would have appeared at that time. Um, Then there's also, I think, Gary Kronk, I believe, is the author of the uh, Cometology series, where he has gone through history and he has noted where, you know, famous instances of the appearances of comets occur as well. 
there's actually a lot we can do. Many would say, well, we, we'll never know what that was. To the contrary, there are a lot of things that can be done to help us understand what exactly we might have been seeing. But I want to kind of go into this because this is, again, this very well may have been a celestial object. Who knows what it was? But to say that we'll never know, that's where I think the historical UFO researcher kind of goes, well, maybe not. Let's look at some of the clues. This is where it gets fun. Let's see what we can actually discern about this. All right. Now, we can see that the object appears to have been only a nighttime occurrence. That much seems pretty evident. Um, Zazuman compares it to other known celestial phenomena from that time, primarily that were only visible at night. For instance, he notes, and I quote him here, it shone brilliantly, not with divergent rays like a comet, so he compares it to a comet, but with the concentration of a great deal of light, apparently dense and yet transparent. I mean, that's a great description that he gives us. But I was really interested by the fact that he noted that the length of the cross was about 15 stadia from Calvary to the Mount of Olives, and its breadth was in proportion to its length. Now, from this description, of course, this gives us a pretty good idea of how much space in the sky the so-called arms of the cross actually occupied. And, you know, the idea of the one of the problems, I guess, that we have here is he mentions the Mount of Olives. We, we're pretty sure where that is. Calvary, of course, there's... If we're, if we're referring to the Bible and, you know, religious texts, you know, there is some dispute about where Calvary would have been, uh, i.e. Golgotha, essentially the location of Christ's crucifixion. But what's really interesting is, historically speaking, we know exactly what he was talking about. And the reason why, Ryan, is because Helena, the mother of Constantine the Great, had actually, just 26 years prior to when this occurred, she had designated uh, the site known as the the Church of the Holy Sepulchre uh, as the location of the crucifixion. It's still there today. Okay, so we know the actual monument that Zosuman was referring to when he describes Calvary. So I went on Google Maps, and, and I'm like, okay, cool. Well, we know exactly between this location and that location how much of the sky was occupied by this. This and That's a fair amount, but we also have to take into consideration where would one have been standing when they're observing I would presume probably that they would have been in, you know, town center. Okay. Which I I think I've got it uh, plotted out to being uh, from Jerusalem town center. It's about uh, 1.17 miles due Northeast as the crow flies to the church of the Holy Sepulcher or Calvary. So Mm -hmm. I'm able to guesstimate that he's probably over there from, you know, somewhere in in the main town center from Jerusalem looking East he would have to be to be able to observe these two locations. So now we know what region of the sky it's occupying too, because he's looking east. Um, some additional details I've got in my notes here. Further distant to the east and slightly south beyond is the Mount of Olives at a distance of 1.98 miles from Jerusalem proper, according to Google Maps. From the perspective of an observer, again, in Jerusalem looking east, that distance across the horizon between the two locations we're talking about would appear to be roughly uh 557 meters or 1,827 feet. So whatever this object in the sky is that they were seeing at night was occupying quite a large region of the sky. Uh, That brings us to the question of what it was. Actually, I do want to touch on stadia because that's the, um, the measurement that he's using when he talks about this, the plural form of the Greek stadion, of course. Now scholars disagree about what that length actually uh, would have been. And, some measurements range from 157 to 209 meters. But what's really interesting and what I found is that we know the exact distance between the Calvary he referenced and the Mount of Olives. If we multiply the higher estimate of around 209 meters, okay, um, 
we multiplied that by 15, which would have been the number of stadia that he actually gave us in the account he wrote, we get 3.14 kilometers or 10,290 feet. And that's very close to the modern distance between those two locations. So what that tells us is not only do we have a good idea of what the stadium meant, but Zashman gave a very good estimate of that length, that distance wow. between the two areas. Yeah. So I know I'm geeking out here a little bit, but the point I'm trying to make is that there's a lot of information that can be gleaned from historical texts and sources and documented sightings of things like this. The problem is, again, at this point, I'm not certain what exactly the object would have been, although if I had to guess, I would probably say that there were, was a bright star or some similar celestial phenomena that was producing what are called refraction spikes. Now, Often you'll you'll read that refraction spikes are something if you're looking through a telescope, you're certainly going to see a star producing those. You see them in photographs, too, because a lens is involved. But the, the naked eye, you're not going to see that with the naked eye. Under the right circumstances, you can. And so the question that remains unanswered and what's going to be a little more difficult to get access to, Starry Night Pro is probably not going to give us this, is what the atmospheric conditions were around Jerusalem at the time that this sighting occurred, if only we had an account and there may be a historical account that would give us some information about that, that might help us clear up what exactly conditions would have been conducive to refraction spikes occurring. But since they describe a, a you know, again, a cross shape and one of which occupies this distance relative to objects on the ground, again, my best guess would be a bright star. And again, somebody out there who might have the pro version of Starry Night Pro, if you're hearing this, I'd love to talk because <laughs> I bet we could figure this one out. Now, maybe not all historical UFO accounts can be solved in this way. And I'm by no means the only researcher who's doing this. In fact, there are some who do it far better and who've been doing it for much longer. Chris Albeck, who we already mentioned, is certainly one of them. But I'm very interested because, again, did they say a flying saucer? No. They said a, they saw a cross in the sky. And here again, I'm very interested in the idea that if some of these objects in these accounts from antiquity are identifiable utilizing modern ast astronomical software and other technologies, then we go back and we read what kinds of accounts they give and what interpretation was given in those days. And here again, I think that the fundamental premise I offered at the beginning, that people will see things which we may understand very well today, but which in that time, in that context, they did not. We are able to see exactly what I'm describing. They project onto it meaning, a holy vision, you know, something of religious significance. And we have to take that into consideration as modern UFO researchers. Sometimes people see things, but in this technological age, the space age, we've gone to the moon, we've sent probes out beyond our solar system. It's only natural that we will also interpret unusual aerial phenomena today through that technological lens. Now, some of these things, like I've mentioned, I think do represent a technology. But the skeptic in me also has to say, we've got to be very careful. And the more that we can rule out, the better prepared we are to understand the broader phenomenon. The fact that we alone can even begin to guess size, distance, possibly even atmospheric conditions. That's astounding that, that we're able to do that and that people like you and Chris are, are looking into these things. Now, here's, here's something I want to bring to you on the skeptic side of Micah Hanks. And again, this is just a story, so we have to take that for what it's worth. But um, I was doing a little digging before we got on here, and I found this really interesting story from uh, 1211. AD. And it was brought to us by an English chronicler of historical events. And I just want to read this to you quick, if you don't mind, Micah. Yeah, please. Okay. 
Quote, there happened in the borough of Cleora one Sunday while the people were at mass a marvel. In this town is a church dedicated to St. Kinneris. It befell that an anchor was dropped from the sky with a rope attached to it and one of the flukes caught in the arch above the church door. The people rushed out of the church and saw in the sky a ship with men on board floating before the anchor cable and they saw a man leap overboard and jump down to the anchor as if to release it. He looked at it as if he were swimming in water, for it might kill him. Excuse me. He looked at it as if he were swimming in water. The folk rushed up and tried to seize him, but the bishop forbade the people to hold the man, for it might kill him. The man was freed and hurried up into the ship, where the crew cut the rope and the ship sailed out of sight. But the anchor is in the church and has been there ever since as a testimony. Now, first of all, I want to find that anchor. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. second of all... We have lights in the sky. We have pareidolia. We have interpretation of uh, someone maybe from a religious standpoint. But when it comes to something like this, where we have a, a physical craft or vessel in the sky and some sort of being coming out of it, where does this lay in terms of um, interpretation? I mean, this is such a literal thing. But again, it is just a story. So, yeah, what would you make of something like this? I'm glad you asked about that one. Uh, that's a an all-time favorite of mine, Ryan. Um what's interesting about that uh encounter, that 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 legend, uh if you will, is that that's not the only account of that essentially exactly, you know, the same scenario. Uh there are numerous accounts. One of the earliest I think that I found actually was from a Norwegian document which was called The King's Mirror. The King's Mirror is fascinating. I mean, I've, I've written articles uh, actually for our pals Ben and Aaron over at Mysterious Universe about the King's Mirror over the years. And I, I've referred to it as medieval Fortiana at its finest. And one of the reasons why is because in the King's Mirror, you've got the, you know, again, one of the classic accounts of the Kraken, which it doesn't describe as anything, you know, squid-like, although most modern scholars, you know, would contend and I would I wouldn't disagree that, again, Many of the early accounts of what we recognize as the Kraken actually were, um, you know, references to things like the giant squid, which we now know to exist, Architeuthis, you know, um, which I've been fascinated with since I was a child. Um, in the in the, the the wonders of Ireland, there's a section in the King's Mirror that discusses Ireland and things that have been discovered there, and it gives an account of a hairy wild man. That's a very unique account, um, which I won't go into details about right now because I want to come back to what you're talking about. The same account that you just gave us appears also a version of it in the King's Mirror. And there are other versions of it, of it that appear elsewhere, too. And um, when I actually I went to Leeds uh, a number of years ago and actually gave a lecture there at an exopolitics conference where I, I talked about that case and some of the similar traditions of not only um, ships sailing through the sky, but the, also this broader idea of, you know, storm wizards I always liked that, you know, and, and this very much, you know, plays into that idea, the belief in the idea as debunked by the Bishop Agobard of Lyon uh, back in the eight hundreds of a sky realm from which people like this came, which they had a name for, they called it Magonia. These accounts of the, of the, uh, the ship sailing through the sky are interesting to me, but the fact that that story is retold and retold in so many different ancient texts suggests to me that it quite obviously didn't probably happen. Some of the variants describe that the anchor was 
preserved in the church. Uh, some say that it was, you know, left in the graveyard because it got hung on a on a actual gravestone. Some of the versions tell that uh, the people uh, rushed out and tried to grab the man and hold him, but either a bishop or a priest or whomever. You know, the holy man in the version of the story may be given the narrative in question. He will stop them and, and you know, tell them, let him go. And then he is able to escape so that he can go back up to his ship because presumably he can't breathe air when he's off of his ship. I mean, again, there are all these very colorful interpretations. What's also interesting, though, about that legend is their conception of people who pass through the sky. But what are they in? They're not in some sort of a marvelous technological contrivance. They're in a ship. They're in a, a sailing ship. And that you might say has some similarities to another very classic pre-ufology flap actually what uh many have actually acknowledged as the first uh ufo wave over america which was the 1896-1897 airship wave um lauren gross uh highly underrated ufo uh, historical researcher um who has uh, he actually self-published a number of of chronologies of UFO events that occurred up through about the time of Betty and Barney Hill. He saw that event as being so shifting in terms of the UFO phenomenon, because it introduced all these elements that were so uh, unique to, and also absent from UFOlogy prior to that point that, you know, it, it was just a game changer for him. And for various reasons, he kind of got out of the UFO historical habit. But up until about that time, Gross published these remarkable self-published, uh, you know, histories of the UFO phenomenon. And he gave a very authoritative account, uh, which I believe the Center for UFO Studies has made available at their website as a PDF that anyone can download. But he looks at the 1896-97 airship wave. Now, again, I would say that the the the, the, 19, the 1890s airship thing would just be like what you're describing there. Uh, you know, the ships in the sky and everything. This is just another legend. But there are some very unusual reports from that period. And being an old newspaper hound, I love to get on newspapers.com and try and dig up, uh, as well as the Library of Congress uh, chronicling America, you know, this particular UFO wave and also pre-ufological reports from prior to 1947. Some of the accounts that were given were quite interesting during the airship wave. And it does cause me to wonder one of a few things. Could some of the actual sightings of airships have involved real physical, tangible objects. Uh, one, for instance, sighting in the very early days of the flap actually involved nothing similar to an airship, but it was an account from sa- uh, south of Sacramento where a man said that a, a, a fellow had been walking by and had asked for a glass of water from his water pump, just, you know, kind of a town vagrant or something along those lines, but that he looks up and out of the corner of his eye, sees something passing through the sky. And he says that the man who had asked for the water saw it too, and they both observed something that was like a square, roughly the the color of parchment, passing through the sky, uh, heading in the direction of Sacramento, but in broad daylight. I mean, they got a very good look at this. Now, it didn't sound like an airship. It didn't sound like, you know, anything else that was being described in the newspapers at that time. But this man said, very matter-of-factly, there was some weird craft or object flying through the sky that he had observed. So some of those reports from around that time, yet again, were they fell outside the whole airship, you know, mythology. And I say mythology not to try and dismiss it and say, this is all nonsense. I mean, what happens when you have people that start seeing strange things in the sky? 
and then it gets reported in the newspapers. And you've got everyone, including, you know, Mayor Sutro's, you know, staff and and people in, in town who had been among the, the members. I think one of the I think the town constable had also seen it, you know, policemen, business owners, people had all said, oh, yes, we saw the great airship as it passed over Sacramento. We observed it, you know, and the descriptions that were given. Very vague, mostly just a bright light as it was passing, kind of maybe drifting back and forth as though the wind was blowing it, but something moving through the air. Again, it leaves a lot to the imagination, but I have little doubt that based on some of those news reports, people were seeing something. And the nighttime reports essentially described it as a, like they said, it looked like an arc light. Imagine like a great big light bulb with with a, with the with the filament there in the center that lights up really brightly like an old timey light bulb, something akin to that. Um, so I'm I'm kind of intrigued by some of those reports, but again, I wonder if if people were actually seeing something, do they project onto that this idea of the sort of sailing vessel that even as recently as the 1890s, most people would have been familiar with? But again, they didn't describe a ship; they were saying an airship. They were seeing propellers and things along those lines. All of this in anticipation of the actual development of uh, dirigibles and airships as we know them today. So, you know, again, in in the pre-ufological context, I don't know what to make of those cases. I think that there may be something to it. I do think, though, that the the sky ships from the Middle Ages and the anchor that was dropped be more in the realm of legend in that case. What's up, guys? Ryan Sprague here, and I'm just dropping in to remind you about our Patreon campaign. Somewhere in the Skies is always free to consume, but it's not free to create. So if you want to help the show on a monthly basis, we have tons of rewards for you in return, including shoutouts on the show and website, bonus content and episodes, and free merch. Want to be my guest or pick a topic for the show? You can do that too. So if you'd like to learn more and to help support the show, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. Thank you, and keep looking up. Yeah, I I would have to agree with you. Um, Just hearing you say that you have heard this story, different iterations throughout time, shows how much these things can make it to a different culture and then take on a whole new lens. That's why stories are so powerful. I feel they're so malleable and um, that's good and bad when it comes to UFO research. It's a little challenging because we're trying to narrow in on a physical craft being seen, but yeah, I want to move back, I guess, back to medieval times that I took us out of there briefly, but um, you also look a lot into um, classic art. Now, a lot of us who think of, Middle Ages or ancient aliens or, um, you know, the idea of UFOs being seen during BC times or early AD times. We see these images of Mary with Jesus with a UFO in the background or um, these what what have you hieroglyphics on the pyramids of men in spacesuits. I mean, this is going really all over the place. But what about when it comes to classic art? Yeah, I know. We might as well. Let's just do it, man. When it comes to art, what do you make of these interpretations of literal, like, saucers being painted into these portraits? I mean, it's it's astounding to me. This isn't a photo that caught something and we looked at it later on. Like, this took hours for someone to paint, so they had to have been seeing that object there. Possibly. Maybe Possibly. not. Maybe not. That's, that's one interpretation. So yeah. the interesting thing about art is... Uh, when it relates to the idea of UFOs appearing in classical art, um, admittedly, 
some of the objects that appear in the paintings are convincing enough, of course, that it had caused me to have to say, look, I mean, are these things flying saucers? I mean, that's what these things really look like. But the problem is, is that when you look at certain uh, Renaissance period paintings, especially uh, that depict actual scenes from the life of the Savior, for instance, you know, I mean, if we're seeing actual uh, representations of the life of Christ or Mary, often what we have is we have a representation on a canvas of a narrative from an actual text. And what is often left out in the, again, not to presented as a pejorative, but again, in the ancient astronaut interpretation, what is often left out is they look at a, a, a painting and they'll see the superficial image or the, or the resemblance in the image of an object to a flying saucer and say, my gosh, that's a UFO. But if you look at another painting that depicts the same scene or the same passage from the New Testament, for instance, Often what you will find is a very different representation. What may look superficially saucer-like in one image in another painting by another painter uh, may actually look nothing like a UFO. It may very clearly look like the clouds opening up and light shooting down from an opening in the clouds. Sometimes an angel is actually visible in this opening in the cloud. And, you know, again, that seems to be the issue. I think that everyone wants, everyone has an idea of you know what they're after, whether it's proving UFOs, maybe disproving UFOs, disproving any kind of extraordinary claim, you know, or endorsing one. Unfortunately, what I do find is that often believers and skeptics uh, tend to cherry pick. In this case, when we see people looking at paintings and saying, that's a flying saucer, man, come on. You know, <laughs> Raphael was painting a flying saucer. If we look at other paintings, you have to acknowledge that not all the artists were painting flying saucers. And then we look back at the flying saucer in this one and we realize, again, what we may actually be observing is his interpretation of a hole in the sky, the light shooting down. But we see a disc with a ray or a you know light being produced by it or something along those lines. Similar to this is the idea of cave art. You know, my love for archaeology and, you know, in a lot of, uh, for instance, I think Tassili Cave and uh, is it Algeria, I believe, where it's. Uh, scene, uh, we see uh, this very interesting, many different, you know, representations there and elsewhere of, you know, what we could only call men in spacesuits. You know, what men appear to have, you know, globes, you know, of of, of some kind, almost like a fishbowl around their head. This reminds us of some sort of helmet, some sort of, you know, um, you know, uniform or a some sort of a spacesuit, perhaps. And the problem is. When we really look at that art, when we really look at that cave art, we have to kind of ask ourselves, as uh, detailed as this cave art is, is it really detailed enough that we can with certainty say that is a guy in a space suit? Furthermore, how certain are we that aliens... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Americans are going to show up wearing space suits that look like what our astronauts would wear when they went to the moon in the 1960s. Ask yourself this. In the modern reports and accounts of abductions or contacts, it's not to say that they don't ever occur, but how often do you hear about Aliens wearing retro-looking, you know, spacesuits like, you know, Apollo-era NASA stuff. Quite evidently, when the books about ancient astronauts began to really become popular in the 60s and 70s, what had been happening with the U.S. space program at that time? What kind of spacesuits were being worn, you know? You have to realize that that is an, an element of this. And again, it's not to disparage the idea that uh, there could have been visitation to Earth in ancient times, because despite all of my skepticism, you know, Ryan, I spoke to a an arch skeptic physicist at one of the regional universities here. Actually, he's an, he's an astronomer who I, I don't think he would mind me naming him either. Uh, Dr. Daniel Caton he used to write a, a very skeptically inclined uh, column for the Charlotte observer. I remember in a radio interview that we did years ago, um, Dr. Caton, who is very down on the idea of UFOs in the modern context said, if earth has ever been visited, I think it happened a long time ago. And I'm like, what? And he says, well, but if you think about it, you know, the earth in the billions of years that this planet has existed, you know, I mean, humans remember Neil deGrasse Tyson saying humans have been here. You see the tip of my pinky, not even that long. Well, in all of that time before we got here and in all of that time that civilizations could have come and gone and utilized technology that could help them traverse the stars. The likelihood, actually, if we're speaking in terms of probability would be that in that period before us coming along, that would have been the period that there's so much more time for Earth to have been visited. And in likelihood, that's actually uh, when Earth would have been visited rather than when we're here right now. So, again, we start to see that there's this sort of anthropocentrism. Well, if UFOs are coming to Earth, if Earth, you know, spacefarers would have come here, it's got to be while we're here, right? Not necessarily. I mean, again, if a civilization billions of years ago existed and then a supernova destroys their planet and all memory of them is lost from the universe, what's to say that they didn't rise to a position, to a point of technological sophistication that brought them to a place like here at some point long ago? Uh, you know, so again, there are some skeptics who would actually contend that if Earth has been visited, it actually would have occurred a long time ago, which, you know, it's, it's a fair point. Um, but one more point that I'd like to raise in relation to ancient art about this. Again, I'd mentioned uh, the discussion with David Halperin recently, uh, which on the Micah Hanks program, my podcast, that is this week's episode. And so you can listen to the entire thing there for free. He had had a colleague bring to his attention uh, the fact that um, what is known as um, this is a, a piece of art, I believe it's called the Pre-Dionica uh, mask from Kosovo. His colleague said, you know, that alien that you showed a picture of in your presentation, the alien, by the way, in question, Ryan, was the famous uh, depiction of a gray that appeared on the original cover of Whitley Strieber's book, Communion. And I don't even call it a guilty pleasure. I've, I've always enjoyed that book. And I think that 
it should be essential reading for anybody who's interested in studying modern ufology, whether or not you take all the, the uh, you know, the ideas and the claims presented in it um, as being pure reality. Um, the point I think I would make about that, which is a topic for another conversation, but I'm not sure Whitley did. And if you read that book and he has pointed this out himself, he never said that they were extraterrestrials that he was having encounters with. He said, for instance, what if there were time travelers? What if they were, our ancient ancestors somehow communicating with us. My favorite idea that he presents in the book was what if this is what evolution looks like to us as it's happening before our eyes. Incredibly forward thinking. I love that idea of aliens being a either evolution or let's be honest, a de-evolution of humanity. Um, Are they time travelers coming back to see how we once were? I find that fascinating. I think you're right. He never once says alien. He always calls them visitors, which could mean a thousand different things. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. He did speculate about what he thought they might've been, but more in a poetic way. And then when he went on um, Larry King, you know, and they've got uh, some, uh, who was it? I I can't recall who the the skeptic had been at that time, but um, during that uh, live panel, I remember uh, Whitley saying at one point, you know, I never said that these were extraterrestrials. I, he doesn't describe ever being taken aboard a UFO. He does, he does describe going into an environment and he goes out into the woods. He, he describes some things that are somewhat UFO like, but he doesn't describe, I saw the saucer hovering outside my window. Again, that is something that very much we could say the UFO community eager to find an answer to all of these reports at that time, they may have projected their own desires onto Whitley's story. Now, coming back to the pre-Dianica mask from Kosovo, this, again, this is a very skeptically inclined uh, researcher, or not a researcher, even so much as a professor, probably of, 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 uh, of religious studies uh, and a colleague of Dr. Halperin, who again is uh, a, a retired professor of religious studies from UNC Chapel Hill. And he says this pre-Dianica mask the thing on the cover of that book remarkably. And again, what we have is we have slightly slanted ovoid wraparound eyes, slight peak at the top of the head, but essentially an egg shaped head. And I looked at it and talking with uh, Dr. Halper and I said, and that image in the mask that you see there is also remarkably similar to other artistic representations from all around the world since time immemorial. I mean, I've seen them in, you know, from Mesopotamian art. I've seen them a lot in Mesoamerican art. And see, this is where my interest in archaeology comes over into this. You know, I'm, I'm able to recognize, not that others can't, but I mean, I certainly see those similarities myself. And that brings some interesting questions to mind. Obviously, we could interpret that as being, well, these people knew what these things looked like, and aliens have been visiting us since time immemorial. Maybe, I don't know. But what Dr. Halperin suggests is that whatever this experience is, it's not an outer or an upper, you know, it's an inner experience and that this, whatever this is, is something that we see from here. And I've always thought about, for instance, this brings us back to Tassili Cave and some of these, you know, representations of of strange beings and personages that appear in cave art and things. Some of them very literally, Ryan, have mushrooms growing all over them. (laughs) It couldn't be, <laughs> it couldn't be more spelled out for us right there. Yeah. These probably are gods or deities or images that people may have experienced when in altered states of consciousness. And I've always thought, you know, if you were an extraterrestrial civilization, or let's say more importantly, if we as humans conceiving of an extraterrestrial civilization, we always think that they're gonna have some sort of a real high tech walkie talkie. You guys down there? <laughs> 
What if their methods of contact don't involve dropping down in a flying saucer on the on the front lawn of the White House? What if their version of contact is direct to direct, you know, direct to consciousness type contact? And again, take them for whatever they are. But I mean, I will make the um, I will make the uh, I will raise the point that in many uh, cases where people have described alleged contact with occupants of UFOs. Um, there's one of two things that's usually present. Curiously, they are able to understand what the aliens say, and they take it as they were speaking English, or some observers say, actually, I don't recall ever seeing their mouths move. It was though they were, Barney Hill said this, Betty Hill said this, it's as though they were directing thought to me, and it was thought transference. Barney Hill, by the way, at the time that he uh, used that to describe it, he wasn't familiar, as far as we know, with the term telepathy. And so, which I thought was, it was very novel that he actually uh, used uh, such a interesting term, thought transference to describe it. <laughs> that was, that might be better than telepathy in my opinion. Too far off. Yeah. 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 I mean, awesome. again, and that's a fascinating uh, case in itself, but again, the idea that the mind is some component with the idea of contact is already present in many alleged claims of contact already. And so I, I can't help but wonder you know, rather than spacemen in space suits on cave walls, we very well may be seeing aliens, but again, non-human intelligences that were contacted through other methods of contact. And those probably involved altered states, in my opinion. So again, I think that there are all kinds of mysteries in art from antiquity and even further back, but we've got to be really careful about saying they're for flying saucers, right? Really good point. I mean, I know some people in the chat brought up, uh, Alexander the Great seeing flying shields in the sky before battle, or the Hopi Indians also seeing something similar to flying shields in the sky. May I touch on that? Absolutely. Um, Please do. The, the, the motif of shields flying through the sky or falling from the sky, that is a common theme in many uh, texts. But again, if you read, for instance, uh, especially in the old world, uh, where uh, it, on the day of the great battle, a shield fell from the sky. Yes, the shield would have a superficial appearance to a flying disc or saucer. But again, culturally, what that seems to represent is the idea of favor shown toward one side of the battle, uh, you know, than the other. Um, now, I raise that point to to make uh, the observation that in historical accounts, there are references to a number of things. Um, for, you know, a portion of the day, we observed a great disc in the sky. The disk of the sun, especially in Egyptian texts, they refer to the disk of the sun. Um, I strongly suspect that going, you know, a good ways back, uh, you know, the ancient mind could conceive of the idea that the sun was a globe. But, I mean, even today, superficially, it appears almost like a flattened disk. And so we have to be very careful when we think about flying disks in the modern sense of what that means versus when we read translations of ancient texts that were written in different languages, which in the translated form describe the disk of the sun or a disk in the sky or a shield in the sky or something along those lines, those words and the interpretation of those things could and often did mean very different things to the ancient mind than they did today. However, um, as someone there in the chat had certainly, uh, pointed out, uh, there are, re yes, references to the idea of flying shields in some Hopi traditions, um, which, again, I, I wouldn't begin to understand fully the cultural lens through which they are looking when they describe something like that. But I would nonetheless maintain that we've got to be very careful in projecting our own willful desire to find a flying saucer 
in you know American Indian folklore. And that may be what it is, but maybe that's not what it is. Uh, you know, again, there, then again, there are also some uh, some fantastic writers, uh, you know, uh, who have indigenous heritage. Uh, RD6 Killer Clark, who has written some very interesting books that provide cultural narratives on the UFO subject from a Native American perspective, which I would recommend for those who are interested in this subject to read. Um, you know, some of the stories are they 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 border they 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 find a uh, an area between myth and folklore and reality that is hard to it's a hard line to walk at times, but it makes for very interesting reading. She's a very uh, interesting writer. Yeah. Uh, another one that comes to mind would be Clifford Mahoudi from the uh-huh. Zuni tribe. Um, yep. I met with him recently to oh. talk about petroglyphs that he'd found in Arizona. And just hearing the stories of uh, the star people, the sky people, again, it comes down to culture and what's past and what's interpreted. What we're talking about right now really brings me back to the work of Carl Jung as well. And you even said the word anxiety or stress or anticipation. This idea that what we're seeing is either aspiration of what we want our technology to possibly become or anxiety at the time. Uh, he argues that a lot of the UFO sightings post-World War One, before World War Two, these were anxieties we had of an other um, invading or um, the possibility of an invasion in our skies of literally bombs being dropped on us. So what do you make of this whole thing? The idea of stress, anxiety, um, the cultural mindset at that time, maybe even a collective consciousness of um, something, either uh, a symbol or a harbinger of like death or doom. I mean, we're having mass UFO sightings right now, like never before in the middle of a pandemic. So what do you make of this idea, the stuff that Carl Jung talks about a lot? Well, now, Carl Jung, uh, it's so funny that this came up because this is something that Halperin and I were talking about uh, yesterday. And uh, I've always been interested in Carl Jung. Um, For instance, when he in some of his essays on phenomenology, he described some of his patients who described dreams from which they woke up and saw, you know, grotesque hobgoblins and kobolds standing around their bed. What does that sound like? You know, Um, it's interesting. Again, there are always more than one interpretation of something like that, but some might say that his patients were describing alien abduction type experiences. We also might say he was identifying a variety of dream encounter that many people in modern times interpret as being a alien abduction experience. Um, whatever one makes of it again, there's some fantastically rewarding, um, reading in, in Carl Jung, even though he's often disparaged in, in modern times, Ryan, people these days often, kind of write him off and they think all of this, you know, discussion of archetypes and things is nonsense to the contrary. Uh, if you look at some of the psychological jargon that he actually is responsible for introducing into the, not just archetype, but again, I think that the idea, the concept of individuation, which is essentially sort of like a coming of it's, it's, it's not quite a coming of age. Individuation often occurs uh, later in life, but he, when in describing that, also seemed to be de- describe, even though he didn't use this term for it, he seemed to describe the midlife crisis that many men go through. So the point I'm making is, is that Jung was actually very ahead of his time. And even though people, a lot of people got really dismayed with the fact that toward the end of his life, he starts writing at length about alchemy and yes, flying saucers. Um, I actually found him to be deeply insightful. I think he was a maverick. I think he was a genius. Uh, he wasn't right about everything. And at times he's been proven explicitly wrong, but I don't think that because you can prove that somebody's wrong you know, if one of my fingers is wrong, that doesn't mean that the whole hand's got to go, right? <laughs> we hope not. But I mean, yeah. 
the thing is, is that with Jung, yeah, toward the end of his life, he starts writing about flying saucers and he produced an essay, which yet again, I think this should be required reading for any serious ufologist. Um, flying saucers, a modern myth, things seen in the skies. There we go. Here it is. I came prepared, buddy. I may not know what the hell we're talking about, but I got the literature to prove I will. All over it. No, so. no. You're, <laughs> Here's know. another one just to add it in there. Yes, yes. Well, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've met him a number of times over the years. And the last time he and I uh, and his wonderful assistant, who is a dear friend of mine, Ramon Zercher uh, of, yeah. of Switzerland, uh, they're, they're wonderful guys. You know, really quickly about Von Daniken, you know, he's kind of disparaging toward ufology. He says, the ufologists, they make this as ancient astronauts look very bad. We cannot take the UFOs seriously. Uh, they are every everything that they see in the sky is a UFO. We are looking at the the archaeological record, and this is very real. So he's very, at times, dismissive of what he sees as being a bunch of hucksters and charlatans in the UFO community. <laughs> well, he's, he's not entirely wrong, right? <laughs> yes. Then again, I just won't tell you what some of my friends in the archaeological community think of him. But, uh, but you know, I mean, is I I believe in talking to everybody and sitting down and getting to know what they think and. I love when I have that kind of experience with someone. Anyway, coming back to Jung, I just wanted to interject that since you showed Von Anakin's book. Oh, yeah. But uh, Jung wrote about UFOs as a modern myth of things seen in the sky. And, uh, you know, yes, people get very offended by that idea of, you know, what do you mean a myth? UFOs is a myth. But, I mean, what he meant, and I think that this is the fundamental takeaway that one must glean from any reading of Jung or, for that matter, Joseph Campbell, is that myth is part of the human experience. And humans are all, I don't care who you are, we're all trying to find, you know, ourselves. And we're all trying to understand what it really means to be alive. We may not go about our daily lives thinking about those things overtly all the time. But, I mean, that's part of the human experience to try and find a sense of meaning and belonging. Okay. And we could go back into ancient times and suggest strongly that politics and religion and all these sorts of tribal behaviors, some of them, I mean, they aren't all bad. You know, I'm not saying it's bad to go to church on Sunday if you're a religious person, but I am saying that, you know, again, religious observances, political attitudes, these are all, okay, behavioral aspects of what it means to be human that at times have been beneficial to us in our survival. I highly recommend the book, uh, The Righteous Mind uh, by Jonathan Haidt. It has nothing to do with UFOs, but it will give you some really interesting insight into um politics, religion, and yes, now apply that to believers versus skeptics. You know, it's a phenomenon in itself these days that, you know, the skeptics are the ones who are the only ones who are quoted on Wikipedia. If you go read on Wikipedia pages about UFOs, and yet many times I think it's actually demonstrable that many of the skeptics are no more right and often are quite quite wrong than, you know, the, than the so-called believers who are the crazy ones who never get quoted. So, I, I argue this middle path, and I think that Jung did too. And if you read A Modern Myth of Things in the Sky, you know, his conception of UFOs, yes, throughout the duration of the book is looking at the psychological and the mythos, uh, the psycho-symbolic or the psycho uh, or the mytho-psychological. He has different terms for it, but he looks at the mythical component, okay, how a human myth and how those ideas of archetypes, you know, these recurring themes that seem to be something that the human mind possesses, which are evidence of um, past experience. If we were to define an archetype, essentially, it is a recurring motif in human culture that is essentially a vestige of an earlier human experience. And those archetypal ideas are 
uh, become they become uh, often indelibly a part of our mythology. Mm-hmm. And there is similarity in mythologies from different parts of the world that presumably had no contact with one another, which is strongly evocative of this idea that uh, the the mythic portion of the human mind, evolutionarily speaking, this gets kind of out there, but bear with me. The mythic element of the mind, the, ma- the language of myth or archetype is bears a continuity because of the idea that deep down there was a shared common experience. Think of flood myths from all around the world in different cultures, mm-hmm. right? Even Native American legends describe those. I mean, think of, for instance, this is a weird one. The idea that when it rains, when the sun is shining, so many cultures around the world interpret that as being a fox wedding. They say foxes are getting married. They're all over the world. There are cultures that have this tradition. So Jung was very interested in the the reasons why those similarities appear. And so he's looking at UFOs as being a projection of, you know, our collective concerns. I mean, it's no surprise that these things start showing up right after the Second World War. And so war nerves and all of this causes this sort of mythical aspect of the human mind to communicate. And we begin to have this collective experience of the UFO as a visionary, mythical, modern, mythical kind of a thing. So there you go. There's a psychological perspective. The last <laughs> chapter in that book. Now, I mean, I don't know if you – we can't speak for Halper and we can't speak for uh, Young, obviously. But within their writing or from you interviewing Halper, uh, someone brings up in the chat, Brian brings up, you know, Young thought this was all some big mass hallucination. The circle being that of oneness to bring us back together. Yeah. This, that, um, It's fascinating. Now – would Halperin or do you think Young would admit or at least acknowledge, I guess is a better word, that there is an actual physical phenomenon happening? They can't all be mass hallucinations, right? Young didn't think so. And thank you, Brian, for bringing it up. That's a great point. Um, that last chapter that I'd begun to mention there, yes, in the last chapter of the book, Young, um, he says, look, you know, if these things are just purely psychological, I've never seen a a psychological thought projection that can be detected on radar. And therefore, and here's the thing, Jung was something of an amateur ufologist himself. He says in the book, he had, I've been in, I've corresponded with Edward Ruppelt. I have corresponded with Donald Kehoe. He was in touch with all of the leading researchers in this field at that time. And he acknowledged, look, some of these things show up on radar. There are multiple witness sightings. And again, that's the point I'm, I want to drive home here too. We have to look at the human faculty because really everything we've been doing tonight, you know, looking at the cases from antiquity, you know, up to the present, and even I think in modern UFO sightings too, we have to look at that Jungian side of this. But I don't present that as a pet theory that explains all UFOs. And I'm very thankful that Jung, despite being the eminent psychologist of his time, you know, and arguably the most influential of all time, even more so in my opinion than Freud, although some may dispute that. Uh, he also said, look, guys, we cannot deny some tangible reality to some of these sightings. And I absolutely agree with it. Now, um, Dr. Halperin does not, he said, as I spoke with him, and again, what a wonderful interview, wonderful guy to talk with. But I asked him, I said, now let's let's talk about something you mentioned in the book, Lonnie Zamora and Socorro. Dr. Halperin said, I still cannot reconcile with that one. That one, you know, there were physical traces left at the landing site. Um, if we actually, a deep reading of that case, I mean, there may have been other witnesses other than Lonnie Zamora. 
the skeptical interpretation, two I've seen over the years, one had been that it was an experimental landing module uh, that had been tested. But if that's the case, again, I don't see an identifiable propulsion system. The skeptical angle on the landing module would have been that it had actually been carried alongside a helicopter and that Lonnie just didn't see that it was on a helicopter. I'm like, come on, come on. The yeah. other interpretation is that it was a candle balloon. In the words of one local uh, um, scientist who had argued this, he said it was a candle balloon, not sophisticated. That sure don't sound like what Lonnie Zamora saw to me. Okay. Heineck took such interest in that case. Again, I think at times, and this is the only, I, I, being so skeptical myself, it's funny. I actually catch some ire from certain skeptics, but I'm friends with a lot of them too, including a shout out to my man, uh, Eric Wojciechowski. You know, he's a writer for Skeptic Magazine, and he and I have corresponded over the years, and I've had him on my show. Um, I appreciate the skeptical interpretation as well as that of many believers. But when anybody starts claiming that they can explain 100% of the time something that there is so much varied debate about, as you know, the case with UFOs, I immediately become skeptical of that skepticism. <laughs> <laughs> the feedback loop, man, I know. Well, okay, so let, let's move ahead, I guess, a little bit to more of the modern UFO era, build upon what we just talked about in terms of interpretation and, um, and everything. We move to the work of Charles Fort. Now, I know this is a huge inspiration for you in your work and many other Fortean researchers out there. And uh, you brought to me the um, the Fortean Society and UFOs, um, a survey of the UFO mystery, um, going all the way from, you know, the late 1800s up to the mid 40s, when presumably the modern UFO era really started. So um, what did you take away from this, the work of Dr. Fort, when, excuse me, Charles Fort, when it comes to this? Yeah. A doctor in his own mind. In his own mind, yes. <laughs> and many others, yeah. I like that. Yeah, doctor in his own mind. You know, so Fort had a lot of interesting um, ideas. And uh, to call them interesting is maybe, uh, in the minds of some, a little too nice. Although, I don't know if he ever wrote anything offensive. But I'm trying to think of, uh, uh, oh, it was Heineck. Heineck had spoken pretty dismissively about Charles Fort. I think Heineck acknowledged that Fort anticipated modern ufology, but he did not seem to approve of the way that Fort wrote about it. And actually Fort's writing style in and of itself was just damned bizarre. Do you remember? Yeah. I mean, you know, like, um, let me see if I can, uh, uh, freestyle rap, a, uh, you know, an example for you here. Uh, here we go. Do yeah. it. Strange light shot from cloud, like blood dropping from eye of dragon, wind blue, blood rain, blood rain, blood rain. I mean, <laughs> he wrote in this bizarre kind of rambling kind of, I guess it was prose, but it was almost poetic at times. And I'm just like, man, what is, you know, it's, it's very difficult, but yet it, it had, it had an effect and obviously a lasting one, you know? <laughs> so young, but, but now what, what's almost said young, um, I would love to know what Jung thought about uh, uh, Fort, and I'm sure probably it's mentioned somewhere. But the big takeaway for me uh, with Fort, he did two things. Fort got people thinking outside the box. You know, Fort Fort was the kind of guy who he didn't mind the ridicule. He wanted to go up there and smack science around and say, you know, what's this? What's this? What's this? This isn't from, you know, some crackpot, you know, novel or some journal or some, you know, scroll I found in a cave. This was from, you know, the minutes of the Royal Society. This is from the journal Nature. I mean, he was going and he was harvesting uh, reports that fell outside of conventional thought. He was harvesting them from science literature. 
And that was, I think, why what he did was so effective because people were like, well, well what is that? And, um, and it inspired, I think, a whole generation of, of similar thinkers. So that's the one thing that he did that was so important. But the other thing, and this is really key for UFO researchers, Fort was cataloging anomalous aerial occurrences well in advance of 1947. And what's really interesting, and again, the uh, late historian Loring Gross, who we mentioned earlier, did you know fantastic work with this in chronicling the continued interest after Fort of the Fortean Society leading up to the age of the saucers that begins in 1947. The Fortean Society was very much involved in documenting alleged reports of aerial phenomena before things were called flying saucers or UFOs of, of any sort. So in addition to getting people thinking outside of the box and really having this cultural impact that he did for good or for ill, you know, um, Fort also seemed to have anticipated he and the Forteans that followed after him, they anticipated the modern UFO era and a, a great example um well, first I should note that, you know, Fort actually wrote pretty extensively, not only about the airships, but he also looked at uh, astronomers and their observations of unusual objects. And there's this fantastic kind of corollary we can make here, which ties back in with the um, report, the, the legend of the sky ship dropping the anchor and everything that you mentioned earlier. Lauren Gross in writing about Fort talked about uh, the, uh, the famous observation of uh uh, what was the uh, the German? Um, or actually, I guess he was actually in Switzerland at the time that he observed this. But the astronomer, um, and this is of course in the Book of the Damned, where a strange object, a spindle-shaped object, is observed over the sun. And um, this again, I think, occurs in the middle 1700s, right? And Fort was of the mind that this was he he gave this thing a name. He said this was a super zeppelin. Mm-hmm. He said somebody else's zeppelin that can fly between planets was seen. And this, this is what was observed out there as it was orbiting the sun or as it was passing between earth and the sun. And he gave it a name. He called it Monstrator. That's what Fort called this. Lauren Gross writing about Monstrator said for Fort, they had arrived. Someone had dropped anchor. And I just, I love that interpretation. Again, we don't know what this thing was. This very well may have been an early astronomical observation of an Oumuamua like, uh, object, you know, in our own solar system or something interstellar that came from outside that was passing through. We don't know. Um, I doubt sincerely that if Oumuamua is an interstellar visitor, that it is really the only, the first one, rather. It's certainly not the only one because we've got this other uh, comet, uh, now a fragmentary comet that is split into to two, but which uh, is believed also to have been of interstellar origin. But the point I'm making is, is that our observation of interstellar objects passing through our solar system is limited by the technology that we are able to utilize in observing them. And prior to the existence of that technology, who's to say there weren't other Oumuamuas that came through? Now, um, to give a non-Fortean example of the anticipation of UFO-like literature, like what we're discussing there, I referenced this uh, article by Vincent Gaddis, Visitors from the Void, which is a fantastic article that appeared in the same issue of Ray Palmer's Amazing uh, Stories as the introduction of what became known as the Shaver Mystery. I'm sure a lot of people know. Yeah, at least my listeners know, are familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Richard Sharp Shaver's, you know, crazy ramblings about uh, detrimental robots or Darrow's leftover. Darrow's, yeah. Yeah. The insane robotic remnants of a lost civilization that was here on Earth. Palmer tried to keep it at arm's distance, but Palmer definitely, Ray Palmer, the publisher of Amazing Stories, seemed to really think that in likelihood this was all true. He thought Shaver has 
explained. And what's fascinating is, is that Palmer also had claimed that he was receiving reports. He wrote prior to 1947 that he'd been getting reports from servicemen and women who had been in the Pacific theater or in the, you know, who had been over, you know, uh, Europe during the second world war. And he says, I think that Shaver, Mr. Shaver will be vindicated here in the years to come. Uh, and that the reports I'm getting from some of our folks who've been flying over Europe, they've been seeing things that I think will, will vindicate Mr. Shaver's story. Well, lo and damn behold, I mean, again, Charles book, Charles Fort's book of the damned being the, the whole thing. He says, these are the damned facts that science won't allow in that issue. It introduces the Shaver mystery. Vincent H. Gaddis publishes the article, Visitors from the Void. And I want to just read really briefly here from the beginning. There have been signs, symbols, and objects in the skies of Earth. Like we've been discussing all night, Ryan. Described as snakes, swords, lights, and rockets. Slow-moving so-called meteors have zigzagged their way above the clouds, and stratospheric explosions have rocked the land below. Mysterious rays stopped airplane motors over the world's largest city as unidentified phantom planes puzzled the war departments of four nations. Ships and men were observed to drop from the heavens in isolated areas only to vanish. And he says, this is the startling story of bewildering events that have occurred in the last few years. What relationship, if any, exists between these varied reports? Who or what lies behind them? And then he goes on to give a story of an, a mystery airship that was spotted over at this point, Pleasant, West Virginia. Of course. In October 1931, years before any Mothman business. Or Flatwoods Monster. Yeah. Or Flatwoods Monster or Kenneth Arnold, for that matter. Vincent Gaddis is laying out, you know, mysterious aerial visitors over the Americas. Later that same, actually, I think that the issue in question went to print in June that year, I think. So later that month, this pilot from Boise, Idaho is flying out over Mount Rainier and sees these objects that are moving very strangely. He likens their movement to um, saucers skipping across the water and the rest is history. But so to say that the flying saucers arrived in 1947 with, with Kenneth Arnold, no. You know, there had been a long history of researchers looking at weird things in the sky, whether or not they were saucers or UFOs as we know them. Yet again, even Kenneth Arnold, he said that what the press began to refer to as his sighting of flying discs, he said that they were more like chevron shaped or they almost had like a bat wing kind of appearance. Mm -hmm. He didn't necessarily describe flying discs or saucers at all. So we have to ask ourselves in that regard, coming back to Jung, is it really fair to say that although UFOs may exist, this idea of flying saucers is a bit of a modern mythology, something that we project onto the UFO phenomenon. Now, I have also interviewed people, as you have, who have seen actual discs, too. So It's hard. It's such a chicken and egg thing. And that's the most frustrating thing about the modern UFO era uh, is a misquote in a newspaper is what ushered in the term flying saucer. And then everyone started seeing saucer shaped craft after that, when that's not even what he originally reported to have seen. So that's, that's hard. That's hard to debate. That's hard to argue. But at the same time, going back to antiquity times and the fact that people were still seeing disc shaped objects or um, shield shaped objects, it does show that this form, this, whatever you want to call it, saucer shape or disc shaped luminous object or solid object have been seen much longer than when 
the first misinterpretation of flying saucer came to be. So, you know what else is really interesting? That expression, I didn't know this until fairly recently myself. Flying saucer, those two words paired together in reference to a disc shaped object flying through the air did exist before Kenneth Arnold. Really? For decades. And it was actually, um, I learned this from Chris Albeck, who I've, he and I have actually emailed over the years, but I've never really had a good chat with him. And I hope to, in fact, when I was in uh, Portugal, Last December, uh, he resides in Spain. I'd I'd looked at the possibility of trying to get in touch with him, and head over there, jump on a train if if time allowed. It didn't. I, I had so much going on while I was traveling, but um, I would really like to get to know Chris better. Um, but Chris had pointed out that indeed, if we do archival new newspaper you know searches, we will find the appearance of the expression "flying saucer," <laughs> Ryan. But it wasn't re- with reference to any kind of anomalous, you know, phenomena. It was in reference to what are also known as clay pigeons, which, you know, wing um, shooters, you know, if you're taking a shotgun, you shoot, you know, like a Frisbee-like kind of a made of clay that you throw and you shoot. And they were from time to time referred to as flying saucers in early newspaper accounts, uh, which is interesting because it very well may be the case then that the first newspaperman, he might have gone to the gun ranges on the weekends or something and had been familiar with that term, but it's very likely that he had borrowed, not created, the expression we know today as flying saucer. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. Demystifying the term flying saucer. Yeah, tracing, it. tracing it back to its <laughs> origins, its true origins, which are even deeper than we ever thought. Yeah, yeah. Wow, man. Well, this has been quite a journey. I'm not going to lie. We went all the way to, you know, BC in this conversation up until the modern UFO era and uh, what's happening today with UFO studies in, you know, since the story broke in 2017. So kind of, I guess, bookending this, where do you think we stand today as um, let's take the UFO community, zoom in a little bit. Where do we stand today when it comes to UFOs. I mean, that's an extremely broad question, but um, we have these Navy encounters. We have um, new reporting systems within the military. We have the Army working to analyze UFO stuff with, you know, former intelligence officers. This, that, this, that. Where do we stand today in 2020 when it comes to the UFO question and uh, how it's being perceived by the mainstream? Right. Well, now what's really interesting is uh, the mainstream seems to have kind of warmed up to the idea, haven't they? Yeah. Um, I do have to thank somebody and acknowledge somebody who you got to meet and speak with recently. And I'd love to talk with her too. Leslie Kane. I think Leslie uh, is, you might go so far as to say she's largely responsible for the cultural shift in, in relation to UFOs. I mean, yes, she co-authored the article with Helene Cooper and Ralph Blumenthal in 2017. But again, a lot of people don't pay attention to the fact that she also uh, one no let's see yeah uh, one month before that she had also written a Huffington Post piece. I mean, the day after Lou Elizondo left his position at the Pentagon after he resigns, Leslie goes to Seattle, Washington, I believe it was, and she met him and spoke with him and Chris Mellon, Chris Mellon, whom she already knew because she and Chris were on the board of the UFO Data Project together, and she had interviewed him in 2016 for the Huffington Post. Leslie, before all of that, of course, back in what was it, 2010, you know, authors this groundbreaking book, UFOs, uh, you know, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record. And ladies and gents, I mean, in my opinion, there's no better book that summarizes the modern situation with UFOs than that one. Uh, so I, I would just want to say right here, uh, you know, for all to hear, Leslie is um, 
I would love to talk to her at some point because, and you got to recently, I saw that and I was so excited that you got to spend time with her because man, she, she is a trailblazer and, and really she spearheaded so much of this uh, shift in cultural. It's not just a, the media is taking it seriously, Ryan, this is a shift in, in an entire uh, cultural approach to an attitude toward this phenomenon. So thank you, Leslie Kane, first and foremost. Absolutely. Um, just, she's, she's just remarkable. Um, now, to Leslie, yes, to Leslie indeed, and I hope she's doing great. You know, up there in, in New York, all you guys up there. With the I checked in on her uh, a couple weeks ago. Everything seems to be good. So, yeah, yep, she's not going over, anywhere. When this all blows over, I come up there again. Uh, you and me and she and old Peter Robbins, we're going back to the Euphoria Diner, and uh, we're gonna <sighs> we're gonna have a breakfast. Everybody will remember. But absolutely. <laughs> but but as far as the current state of things, it's no big secret. Anyone who listens to my shows. Uh, you'll recall that, uh, to my knowledge, I think the first interview uh, that Brett Tingley, writer for The War Zone, gave after he began the series of articles on the mysterious Pais patents that the Navy has published, that appeared on my program. And the reason why is because Brett is a very good friend, and Brett and I spoke today on Skype, which is a real shame because he lives about an hour that way. He and I live in right here in the same region. And although the other guy I'm about to mention lives across the Atlantic, he's about as close to me as, as Brett is. Both of those guys and, and, and you, in fact, uh, they're, they're, I call them brothers just like I would you. And that is Tim McMillan. There's a wonderful thread over on Above Top Secret right now. You know, where does this guy come from? Just comes out of the blue, you know, uh, this retired police officer. And I'm like, look, y'all want to know where Tim McMillan came, came from? Go back to the 2019 February episodes of my podcast, which was still called the Grayling Report at that time. Tim was on my show way back in February. We didn't talk hardly at all about UFOs because he wasn't involved in it at that time. If you want to know where Tim came from, I mean, he's been around for a while. He'd been emailing me since November of 2018 um, and just and had been in archaeological interests. Tim is just a seeker and a very interested and very highly intelligent guy, uh, just like, you know, anybody who studies this sort of stuff. He has questions. By Jove, he goes after it and he goes and finds answers. He and uh, and uh, Tingley both. So being close with those guys like I am, uh, having uh, featured, uh, I, I think maybe Tim had gone on an interview with John Greenwald because, you know, we're all pals and he and Greenwald have done a lot of live streams together. But um, Tim might have gone on John's show before he we went on mine. But the point I'm making is, is that, you know, these guys have been involved in this stuff and then they start taking to it and they do reporting. I think they were in large part inspired by a lot of the reporting that we've been discussing and the cultural shift. And they're like, let's go and let's try and get answers to all this. I've got some projects in the works right now. And that's part of the reason Tingley and I were talking about it today. Uh, Tim and Tingley and I are working on a UFO centered project, which I haven't talked about very much at all publicly, <laughs> but uh, you're getting I, the exclusive here, guys, a little yeah, tease. You sort of are. Yeah. And um, I'll be able to debrief you more on this in the future. But the point I'm making is, is that, you know, this has been a project that, um, has been like Tim and 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 uh, Brett's fine work, a response to UFOs and a modern one. If you notice anything from what Tim and, and Brett are doing, they're looking at Navy patents in Brett's case. Tim is literally getting inside information from Bigelow Advanced Space Studies, Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies. Um, they are providing more details even than guys like Lou Elizondo were able to due to certain restrictions with relation to his job. And thanks to Tim, I've been in touch Briefly, though, it is with Lou Elizondo, and it's really clarified a lot of questions that you, I, me, everybody in the UFO community had about A-Tip and Elizondo. But 
if I see anything going on percolating with the modern UFO situation, especially among younger researchers, because I think Brett's just a year and a half younger than me and Tim might be a little less than a year older than me. You and I are very close to the same age. What people right now are trying to do is we're trying to utilize good historical research methods, as we've discussed tonight. Technology as simple and as accessible as Google Maps, you know, <laughs> that helps us prove that Zossuman in what was it? The year, uh, the year 351. Yeah, yeah. He had a very good idea of what a stadia was. You know, we can we can now utilize astronomical software to determine what objects might have appeared in the sky when people were looking in a certain direction at a certain time. We have data at our disposal that the late great Stanton Friedman didn't have, and yet look what he did. But by Jove, if he could do what he did, and he had to drive up to Washington and sit there at the National Archives and pour through documents, you and I, it's easy. These days, we fire an email off to the FBI or the Air Force, and we <laughs> submit our four-year requests online. Yeah, never, never leave our kitchen. You know. But that means there's no excuse, because we have all of this at our disposal, and ease of access, and a sort of fluidity, you know, a, a, a liquidity, if I'm to use an economic term for it, you know. It's incumbent upon us as the new era of UFO researchers with all that we have at our disposal now to do everything that we can and to follow in the footsteps of the Leslie Canes and the Stanton Friedmans and the Edward Ruppelts, you know, and the Charles Forts and limited though they were, look at all what they look at all that, that they were able to accomplish. We have no excuse. Let's get to work. I couldn't think of a better way to uh, sort of wrap things up there, man. Let's get to work. We have all the time in the world now. So honestly, I, I can't, tell you how much research i've been doing since this lockdown it's a it is a blessing in disguise in many ways but you know we look forward and um however we come out of this entire crisis on the planet right now i think we'll have a better understanding and a better appreciation for humanity itself and i think that's what's most important so in terms of work i gotta ask you uh both the micah hanks program middle theory uh seven ages Give it to us, man. What do you got coming up? Is there anything you can tease with our audience? And uh, where can we find everything? Boom. Go. <laughs> well, I, I'm working on a couple of uh, book projects. Um, there's a short documentary uh, project that's has entirely to do with archaeology and some of the fine work that uh, our friends uh, in the uh, University of South Carolina archaeological um, program have been involved with at a uh, Pleistocene era uh, natural lake uh, which is called White Pond. And so Jason and James and I were recently down, right before this pandemic broke, we were actually down there at the White Pond site filming and speaking with uh, our dear colleague, uh, Dr. Christopher Moore, a PhD, who is yet again a trailblazer in a very different uh, uh, realm, uh, that being archaeology. Um, but um, in addition to that forthcoming uh, documentary and, of course, the weekly podcasts I put out, which every podcast, everything I do, you can find it all at Micah Hanks dot com is my name right here and so that dot com but um you know and i and i put out a tremendous amount of podcasts it's almost mind-numbing because there's the micah hanks program and middle theory which is news and current events i'm i'm i am nonpartisan. i try to approach it i mean i have political you know attitudes beliefs you know you know values you know whatever but i mean i try to present that's what the name means it is a attempt at trying to present a nonpartisan view on current events without the spin that you often see in the mainstream and um, which can be hard to do at times, but I attempt it with the show. So that show and the Micah Hanks program, which deals with all of this that we've been discussing go out every week. And then we also have the monthly seven ages we put out once or sometimes twice a month, depending on how busy we are. And um, 
there is a forthcoming podcast that uh, has been slightly set back due to the um, stay-at-home orders. There's been a stay-at-home order with this pandemic in my county now for um, several weeks, and so that has limited uh, the ability of some of my colleagues and I to actually get together. But we do plan to, uh, even if we have to record it remotely, which was never ideal, but we we have a cryptozoologically themed program uh, that will be forthcoming as well, which I hope to uh, put out at least on a monthly basis as well. In addition to some writing projects and uh, the aforementioned mysterious project uh, that uh, uh, Tingley and, and Tim McMillan and I have been working on. So telling me. Yeah, we got some good stuff. And maybe I'll uh, reach out to you on some of these uh, projects in the future too, Ryan, because again, let me just close by saying I respect the hell out of you and your uh, your, your advocacy uh, for research, your research that you yourself do, um, the content you produce, uh, and you know, your willingness to engage in dialogue with people and, you know, all around really just to uh, try and uh, further our knowledge of the UFO subject and other subjects. And so you're doing all that and you're up there in the middle of, yet again, ground zero. I think it's appropriate to use that term. Um, so I really appreciate you. Uh, and I thank you for all that you're doing right now. These aren't easy times to be doing it, man. So you too, my friend. Thank you're, you. you're in the trailblazing club. <laughs> Thanks, man. I am my first club I've ever been initiated into. I'm very, very honored about that. <laughs> well, Micah, I have to say the same. I respect the work you do. I'm sure um, for anyone new to your work tonight, they're now going to be checking up on everything you're doing. This was a fascinating conversation. Um, Open my mind to how far we can actually go back with this topic, pre-ufology, as it were. So I have to say, be safe, be healthy. Um, and brother, I will see you on the other side when this is all over. Just imagine how much revelations we're going to have once we're able to go outside and look at the sky again. I'm, I'm excited. I can't wait. You tell Leslie and Pete we got a breakfast date. So this is a awkward, okay? <laughs> it is a date. All <laughs> right, my man. Thank you for joining us on Somewhere in the Skies, and we will talk soon. My pleasure, brother. is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. To learn more, visit entertainmentonepodcast.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.